Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome back to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. I'm Ryan Brady here with Chris Mercer, and we are in Los Angeles, California with Mr. Lawrence Juber. Hello. Actually, technically, we're in North Hollywood. Yeah, technically, <laughs> we're in North Hollywood. Yeah, yeah we're, we're really thrilled to have you, Lawrence. Thanks so much for coming out. I know it's a Saturday morning. We want to do what we normally do. You know, we want to go through your whole career, and I think we want to <laughs> kick it off. Yeah, exactly. Looks Do you have uh, until 10 p.m.? Yeah. We want to start with the National Youth Jazz Orchestra uh-huh. live at London weekend television from 1975. Your first thing you've done. Uh, I remember, I mean, being in the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, when I was in college, I was studying music at London University. And the jazz orchestra, commonly known as NYJO, like N-Y-J-O, um, was really, that was a way into becoming a studio musician. Because mm-hmm. uh, you had to be able to sight read, you had to be able to play in an ensemble. That became kind of a goal, was to join that. And, and I was with them, I think, through you know, pretty much the whole period I was at college. We did a bunch of concerts and recordings. And more important, rather than the Live at London Weekend television album, was there was a, a venue called the Cockpit Theatre, which mm-hmm. we played at quite frequently. And we did a... a television broadcast where I got to play some solos and the next day this would have been I think 19 spring of 1975 mm-hmm. next day I got a phone call from a man named David Katz who was in America you call them contractors in England they're fixers <laughs> somebody that would book musicians for session work I got this call from David Katz who was the fixer who said oh, he's called me darling he called everybody darling yeah. I didn't know this at first but he said um, so you're on television last night I have some sessions for you and it was like yeah that's how it's supposed yeah. to work <laughs> and then he said and he gave me the dates and I said sorry David but those are my final exam I can't <laughs> do it and I never expected to hear from him again and then uh, he called a couple of weeks later but being in the National Jazz Orchestra was it was just great because it gave me um, a context to be really kind of practicing what I considered to be my you know, career path, my craft of being, yeah. becoming a studio musician. So from there, so 75, how did you get involved with Cleo Lane and the record Born on a Friday? Well, the bass player with, with Nigel was a man named Paul Hart who was a good friend, and we played together quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And he was playing 
piano with Cleo Lane, who's a multi-instrumentalist, also played killer violin, mm. too. Um, and they were recording an album, this album with George Martin producing, and um, he uh, recommended me to come play on some sessions. But with Cleo Lane, I'd worked with John Dankworth, her husband, because he uh, had written some arrangements for the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really cool working with George Martin. But yeah. I was, you know, it was kind of right at the beginning for me. So yeah. I remember there was one tune we were working on in, I think it was in the key of B. <laughs> and I was in a very manly fashion, you know, trying to do it without a capo. Without and a now capo, I would, yeah. you know, wouldn't have <laughs> thought twice about using a mm-hmm. capo. But then it was like, you know, it was kind of... Yeah, a lot of bar chords, a lot of... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Although B is a very, fret. actually a very cool key. I've written in B and G sharp minor. But mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. those days it was, you know... It was just the textural thing kind of works better if you use it. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Uh, but George Martin was very patient, and um, it was it was a good... Uh, it was certainly one step in my introduction to the studio mm-hmm. world. I mean, that was a point where I was starting to get... starting to get a fair amount of work fairly quickly. Yeah, it looks like from here on, up until Wings, there's a lot of records, including I had no idea you were on an Alan Parsons project. I had no idea either. (laughs) Until when? When did you find out? I read it in a magazine. Uh, (laughs) There used to be a magazine called Musician, and about, oh, I don't know, probably 25 years after the session, I read this this interview with Alan Parsons, and it was like, so yeah, we had Lawrence Schuber come in and play guitar. We did. (laughs) Well, how how would that work? How would you end up on well, something? Well, that was a session. It was at Abbey Road. It probably, a, I think it was a Tuesday night or something, and it was in Studio Two. And you know, you know, from the the pictures, have you been to the you know the Studio Two yeah. or seen the pictures of Studio Two? There's this long staircase that goes up to the control room. You never went up there. Oh, really? If you were, you know, if you were a musician, you, you, unless you were invited up, they kept you, you down on the up. first floor. Yeah, that that was where you <laughs> lived. You know. So. It was an orchestra with uh, Francis Monkman from Curved Air was playing harpsichord, mm-hmm. um, and there were some mandolins, and I was playing acoustic guitar, and I had no idea what it was for. So it was an <laughs> instrumental thing, and we just recorded this track, and you know, and that was probably yeah. my third or fourth session that day. Wow! So you just kind of go from one session to the next, and not always knowing what the outcome of it is and and in that wow. case when the album came out my name wasn't on the credits huh. it wasn't <laughs> until the cd came out that they put my name on the credit so if you're doing three four sessions a day when do you show up and when do you leave you there for 12 well, I mean, hours, typi- typically hours? in those days i mean at 8 a.m would be a jingle session from eight until nine and mm-hmm. that would be uh, oh who knows i mean uh, you know some studio somewhere in london and then and then a, typically a record date will be from 10 until 1. Okay. And then another one from 2 until 5. And in the evening, sometimes a record date or sometimes, you know, like I might play on a variety show pre-record or something. Wow. You just mm-hmm. never knew, you know, right. how yeah, it was yeah, gonna, yeah. what the week was going to pan out like. Uh, but, you know, when you think about, you know, you're doing a session from 10 until 1 and then you have another downbeat at 2 and you're getting from... Olympic to Trident, you know, might be, depending on traffic, might be a, you know, 30, 35 minute drive and then schlepping the gear in right. and setting up and, and you finding a place to park in, with Trident, wow. you know, it was central London. It was like, I mean, I was young, I was in my mid twenties and, and it was a big adventure, you know? Yeah. And it was, it was cool. It got kind of, 
running from session to session with with a, a like a deluxe reverb, a bunch of pedals, a Les wow. Paul, a Strat, um, a six string acoustic, a nylon string, a twelve string, and a high strum wow. was kind of you know that was enough. Well, that's why you're the. And car. there was one guy doing cartridge, and and I couldn't get onto his roster, so I was <laughs> you know he was too busy with people that were working more than I was. Wow. Um, so. When the guitar synth, when the Roland guitar synth came along, and there was like even more gear to start carrying around, it just kind of you know it, it was um, it's not all fun and game. Yeah. But but nonetheless, the you know I I was making a decent living out of it and and accomplishing what I had set out to do, which was to be a studio player. So you're doing all those sessions all the time. So that's where the Jim Rafferty, Graham D. Don Ray. Now, Don Ray was um, the arranger that worked with Cerrone. Because mm -hmm. Cerrone was this French hairdresser who, who kind of played the drums and had a whole bunch of disco hits. <laughs> kind of. Uh, kind of. Yeah. Well, you know, the drummers on the session, I mean, it was typically it would be like Henry Spinetti would be playing Kick and Snare or Dave Maddox or one of the studio yeah. players. And, and Ray Cooper would be playing Hi-Hat. <laughs> you know, and, and it was all like kick, snare, and hi-hat. Yeah. I mean, they were rarely like Tom Phil's. There was a Don Ray record, and this was like one of those sessions where it was like, I think it was like midnight. And, and, then, I, and then they hand me this like 20-minute version, I think, House of the Rising Sun, I think it was, <laughs> wow. something like that. And it was like, and the whole thing was like all lead nylon string guitar. Wow. It's like midnight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a lot of coffee drunk at that time. Absolutely. You know, yeah, I mean, a lot of these, I, I read about them on my Wikipedia page. You know, it's like, <laughs> mm -hmm. really? I, did that happen? Wow. I that. That's amazing. <laughs> the amount of creativity and productivity at that time sounds spectacular. So then from this, this is how you landed with The Spy Who Loved Me, playing the, yeah, that the was kind of theme. Yeah, that was part of it. David Katz, uh, the, the fixer, was, was putting together the, the orchestra and the band for those mm -hmm. sessions. Bond 77 is the track you're on, right? I'm on a bunch of stuff. There's also oh, really? there's an instrumental version of Nobody Does It Better. I love that. I that exactly is me on a Les Paul through a phase shifter and, and Marvin Hamlish on piano and a string orchestra. Wow. And I didn't know Aha. that that was nominated for an Academy Award. Well, congratulations. Uh, who knew? <laughs> I, mean, I didn't even find that out until a few years ago.
they had they played me some instrumental track and they said, well, just play some licks over this. Right. So I did, and then forgot all about it. And then it was like somebody pointed out to me a few years ago. So you know, you're that's you on on the the right out of nobody does it better. And there's a lot of guitar licks kind of weaving in and out of all of the that. Song, the and Carly Simon, the, the, the Carly vocal Simon version, record, the big yeah. Chris and I were talking, well, we only thought that it was the live and let die connection to Paul, but there you are in Roger Moore's best yeah. film, uh, and, arguably. And with, with Barbara Bach playing That's right. as the leading lady. The, the session that was really interesting was, was when it was just me. Um, right at the beginning, there's a scene with the two of them where you hear the theme, the, mm-hmm. you know, the James Bond theme, yeah. just on solo guitar. Right. And... That was a big thrill for me because, you know, part of what motivated me to play guitar in the first place was when Dr. No came out right. and there was that, that gorgeous Vic Flick, yeah. twangy guitar lick, you know. Yeah, you got that twangy sound too. You got that slight bending it out of tune. Oh, yeah, you got to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So then after the success of this, how did you get involved with Wings? Just briefly. The first McCartney connection was with Mike. McGear. I was on a meditation retreat in August of 1977. Okay. And I remember distinctly because Mike walks in the room waving a newspaper and announced that Elvis had died. Oh, wow. So I learned that Elvis had died from Mike McCartney, wow. which was, I, in retrospect was kind of auspicious. Right. Then somewhere around that same period, a little bit later, I met Paul for the first time at CTS Studios in Wembley. Wings were working on the Wings Over America soundtrack. Yes. And I was on a session, um, Herbie Flowers was playing bass. Okay. Was Herbie Flowers and Tony Newman was on drums, which was, uh, you know, kind of played on a bunch of the T-Rex stuff. Yeah. But Herbie was, you know, an old friend of Paul's and walking into the, the men's room, you know, on our Musicians Union break, and there's <laughs> Paul McCartney. Um, and so I, that was my introduction to Paul, a, an inauspicious introduction. 
Um, and then in September, I was playing lead guitar in the house band on David Essex TV show. Yeah, Chris mentioned that to yeah, me. The yeah, the musical director was Richard Niles, who was a, a ranger producer that I did a lot of work with in that period. He's on all like the reissue, the McCartney reissue. Yeah, he, like uh, Blue he Sway did like and the, stuff the, like that. Yeah, the arrangement Blue Sway and stuff like right. that. Yeah. He really came into his own in the 80s. Like he did Slave to the Rhythm, you know, he oh, okay. worked a lot with Trevor Horn, did a lot of lot of re- arranging for him right. records. So on this David Essex show, each week we would have a different guest. Mm-hmm. And one week was Twiggy. In fact, there's a cool video of, of Twiggy and David Essex doing Send In the Clowns with oh. some very prominent acoustic <laughs> guitar on them. And another week was Ronnie Spector, which was kind of cool. Right. Because um, she had uh, her version of, say, um, was it Say Goodbye to Hollywood? Yes. That was out. That was a single. And we did that on the show. Billy then, Joel's record. Then the next week was Denny Lane, and we did Go oh. Now. And they'd given me a guitar solo to play on it, so I played the guitar solo, and Denny liked what I did, and we kind of bonded. And apparently, according to Richard Niles, Denny called him and said, is he versatile? Because <laughs> that, had, that had become a criteria for, yeah. for you know, Jimmy okay. McCulloch's successor right, right. in Wings, because Jimmy, bless him, was a great rock guitar player, but he wasn't a versatile guitarist. Right. right. He didn't do all the other stuff. Sometime after that, I showed up for a session at Air Studios, and Paul Linder and Denny were in, the, were in the same room, running a little bit late, and I was a bit early, and they were working on, I think it was the Oriental Nightfish. Right. Um, that shows up they on were doing a Wild mix. Prairie. They were doing a mix of, of the, the track to go along with the animation okay. for it. They invited me in. So I kind of got reacquainted with Danny and got introduced to Paul and Linda. And mm-hmm. you know, as as they were leaving, I said, "Oh, you know, if you ever need a guitar player, let me know." Kind of, you know, just joking. <laughs> yeah, about. here's my card. Yes. It wasn't until April of '78 that I was at Abbey Road. I was working in Studio Two, and I got a. There was a phone call for me, which was unusual. Right. And I actually got to go up the stairs and into the control room to, mm. to get to the phone. And it was Alan Crowder from, from MPL saying, Danny wants to know if you can come and jam on, on Monday afternoon. Oh, by the way, Paul and Linda will be there. Wow. So as it happened, I was free and then borrowed some LPs from my brother because I didn't own any of the wing <laughs> stuff. I, you know, I knew the, the, the hit records sure. from the radio, but figured there was no way I was going to be able to to cover all the bases, you know, over the course of the weekend. So I just basically figured I would um, just go in and wing it, as it were. Right. Mm-hmm. Which worked out fine, because all we did was play some Chuck Berry tunes and some reggae grooves mm. and jammed for a while. And then Paul said, what are you doing for the next few years? You know, <laughs> I, I fit the suit, basically. Um, and then I had to think about it for a nanosecond, because, you know, I put all this work in from the time I was 13. Right. I was paying my dues as a musician around London and, and with the intention of becoming a studio musician, which I had accomplished. And mm-hmm. I was, you know, at a point where I was really kind of ready to move up to the next level and do more movie and TV stuff mm-hmm. and just kind of be really an established player. And joining Wings was was not an opportunity that I was going to turn down. Sure. But it was, it was a fairly dramatic change career-wise. Right. And it happened... I mean, this was April. I think it was April 22nd was the day that I went in. And my 
dad had passed away March 18th. Mm, I mean, it was literally, you know, a little more than a month had gone by. So I was in this weird transitional state. Understandably. Yeah. When you borrowed those Wings records to kind of do a little review going into the band, what was your reaction in terms of, you know, what the demands on you were going to be? I didn't actually really kind of do anything more than give a cursory listen, to be honest. Okay. Because... I was used to just walking in and figuring out what to do. Hmm. Yeah. As a studio player, you just do that, you know. So I figured I'll walk in and figure out what I'm supposed to be doing. Hmm. You know, it wasn't like I was giving an assignment. Oh, I'd be prepared to play band on the run, jet, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and the thing about Paul that was, that was already kind of clear to me was that the evolution, stylistic evolution was so broad Yes. You know, I mean, this was right after With a Little Luck had been released, you know, on the back of Mull of Kintyre. Wow. Neither mm-hmm. of which were rock songs. Yeah. And both of those were songs that I could, you know, I could fake my way through right. on, mm-hmm. you know, on first A-D. hearing. Uh, you know, not having followed Wings closely uh, up till that point, the, ultimately, I mean, when you look back on it, there is this kind of dichotomy between the pop sensibility and the rock sensibility within the band. Mm-hmm. Which really came came out during the whole Back to the Egg era. Absolutely. Um, so well, and the art rock sensibility that makes things so eclectic. You look at Zeppelin, and I always look at Zeppelin not as a like a proto metal band, yeah, but as an electric folk band, huh. because there's this really strong folk yeah. element. Yeah, in, in what they were doing. Of course, you know, you bring all those, you bring John Bonham in, and you you, know, you bring in those kind of like the <laughs> weight. It, yeah. But but English. Rock was always pretty eclectic mm-hmm. and, and did have at least a veneer, if not the substance of art right. to it. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, having been a Beatles fan, I kind of you know, was familiar with the Beatles repertoire, but the Wings repertoire was just, yeah. not all of it really was that appealing to me. You know, especially at a point in my career where I was, what I was listening to was like, you know, cool records coming out of LA, you know, and figuring right. out what Lee Rittner or Larry Carton were doing and, you know, Steely Dan and, yeah. you know, and Weather wow. Report and Return to Forever and, you know, kind of the fusion end of things. So I've always wanted to ask you about this. So you're on the song Same Time Next Year. Yeah. Chris and I are big fans. A lot of our listeners are big fans of that record, Cold Cuts, and all these like lost records. What was the Same Time Next Year session like? It sounds like, you know, it might have just been another session. Here, we showed up, learned the song. Well, it it couldn't be just another session because it's Paul McCartney, for one thing. And I I think we were at um, Rack Studios. It was a, a demo for a to submit for this movie for same movie, time right. next year. And, but I'd never played on a demo that was so exactingly produced. Pretty elaborate demo. Yeah, pretty elaborate. 
We cut the track. I don't recall there being anything, any complication to it. I mean, it mm -hmm. was pretty straightforward, sure. you know, big McCartney ballad. Really could have been a single, I think. Um, yeah. And the sad part was that Paul Coast didn't actually get the gig. Mm. Um, but the, they were going to overdub strings. And talking about it, I, I recommended Fiacre Trench, who was a great string arranger that mm -hmm. I'd done some work with and, and I think that's who they used but I couldn't be there for the string session because I had I was actually playing at a, a televised variety show in the West End of wow. London the following week because I still had sessions in the book when this process started sure. but that was a cool song and you know it didn't nothing happened with it until they did a they, there were two remixes one was during the cold cut session in January of 1981 And then I think they remixed it again later uh, when it came out as an extra track on the Put It There, Put it there the little, single, yeah. CD single. Were you involved in any additional overdubs in 81? I don't know there were any additional overdubs on, on same time next year other than the strings. I mean, it was... Uh, right. And, you know, whatever they may have done vocally. I mean, but there were no ex additional guitar parts. I don't. I think Denny may have played bass when we laid down the track because Paul was playing piano. Mm. But I, I don't remember. The weird thing was, you know, that was the first track that we cut. Then when we went up to Scotland, you know, to start recording "Back to the Egg," mm -hmm. which was our second trip up to Scotland, but the the next track that we recorded was was "To You." Wow. Which was, you know, a whole different kind Completely. of energy. Yeah, so very difficult yeah. to kind of say, okay, this is the direction that things are going in when, right. you know, it's a whole different kind of, uh, kind of, you know, more robust kind of punky kind yeah. of sensibility. pretty interested in that guitar solo absolutely well yeah that's a story <laughs> unto itself um, in the timeline we we went to scotland twice because the first time we went was just to kind of jam and rehearse and kind of start picking mm -hmm. through material and just kind of getting to know each other that was in may of of 78 right while we were there we shot the video for i've had enough Which neither Steve yes. nor I played on, but that was an upcoming single, and they uh, they wanted a video for it. So we did that with Keith, um, who did all the other videos okay. through Campuchia. So that's the Back to the Egg TV special videos, all those yeah, you're talking about, too? Yeah, okay. that was Keith Co. was the same company that did it. Mm -hmm. And Good Night Tonight was the same. I love um, that video and that song, and your work on that is really spectacular. Oh, but, but the first thing we did was this I've Had Enough video. Right. And then, then we went to New York and met with Lee Eastman, which was you know kind of a big deal. A little bit, yeah. Just a little bit. Yeah. And, and th that was really kind of sorting out the business side of things and then came back and then went up to Scotland and started recording. Okay. With a mobile truck. To you, yeah. Um, Paul played acoustic bass on that. Okay. Playing a Zemitis acoustic bass. There's pictures in, in my your book. In your book, that's yeah. the one, yeah. 
Um, it's got like the heart cut out or something yeah, along those lines. Yeah, the sound hole is kind of like heart shaped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then for the solo on that, you know, Chris Thomas was co-producing. So Chris was the always tenders, wanting yeah. to try things with kind of a little more left field. And there was a device called a harmonizer, eventide mm-hmm. harmonizer, which um, would change the pitch. You know, you turned a wheel and you could change the pitch in real time. Right. And so what was happening there was I was playing the solo and it was being fed through the harmonizer, which Paul was playing in real time and and messing with the notes that I was playing. (laughs) So there was this kind of synergistic thing going on. Right. Um, and it's very organic. It's not that sort of um, bland parallel harmonizing. He's no, no. Changing it was because it, yeah. it was it was real time. He yeah. was modifying it in real time. Yeah. You know, which is something that there was a history of doing. I mean, remember it was Chris Thomas who sat there all night when they were mixing "While My Guitar Gently Weeps" with the with the uh, the ADT varying the, the varying the voltage on the on this big knob so that it would have that wobble to it. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, because Eric said it didn't sound enough like a Beatle record. <laughs> that there was a history of that kind of real-time manipulation, except that this was actually being recorded at the same right. time. I've always been a fan of kind of playing outside the, the lines. Yeah. So when I was hearing what was going on, that was then feeding into me playing that much more atonally. Sure. Because uh-huh. I was trying to, I was kind of going for things that I wouldn't necessarily normally play. Huh. And then Paul was reacting to that in real time. So it was very, it was very synergistic. And you have this nice compressed sort of sustained tone going too. So it really sounds quite unnatural, the whole thing. Yeah, it was a <laughs> Strat through a Mesa Boogie. Okay. We'd mm-hmm. rented a Mesa Boogie amp. Mostly we were using small, like small old fenders. But, right, but right. for that, some of the lead stuff was that. that. And I think the lead on uh, Spin It On was the same. Same amp. Same Mesa Boogie Same guitar amp combo. Yeah. Fantastic. I guess as long as we're talking about Back to the Egg, we're also interested in the out-of-tune guitar on, out-of-tune 12-string on We're Open Tonight. How did that transpire? It sounds amazing. It does. Uh, just that I, I took it out of the case, and the octave string on the third string, on the G string, was not where it should have been. It wasn't mm-hmm. the same pitch as the other string. So I was about to retune it, and I played the figure, Paul's acoustic guitar mm-hmm. figure, that I was going to double. And it was like, oh, well, this kind of sounds cool. I'm not going to mess with <laughs> yeah. it. And it was just one of those happy accidents. Serendipity. Yeah. Nice. Correct me if I'm wrong. That was record. That was the castle. That was not at Lim Castle. Yeah. yeah. You're in like and a I stairwell. And I was in the st- I was in the stairwell. Yeah. yeah.
clearing back all the flaws. We're open tonight. Come on, come on. Well, it's cool that it was a loose enough recording environment that you could try something like that too, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there, there was always the opportunity with Paul to, to try things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the other side of it is that if, if it wasn't happening, that's when Paul would reach for the Epiphone. You know? Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and plug into the AC30 because he can do all that stuff too. Crazy. So when we were tracking, most of the time I'd be playing either acoustic or electric guitar. But like mm -hmm. when we were doing tracking um, Love Awake, Paul and Denny were both playing acoustic guitar, so I played bass. Bass guitar, right. And mm. when it came to doing the final bass part, I thought that Paul would do it. And he said, no, I like what you did. I, I was sitting there with a jazz, jazz bass, and he was like kneeling on the floor next to me, giving me right-hand picking so. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, do you, are you one of those people who plays bass like a guitarist? Well, he does. Okay. Good point. That's his sound, and, right? And, you know, well, but you have to, I think you have to put that in a broader context. I mean, I'm a guitarist, but I'm also a yeah. musician. And I always listen mm, to right. bass parts, whether it was Paul or whether it was James Jameson or Carol Kay. Mm -hmm. You know, um, whereas James Jameson plays very much like a bass player. Carol mm. Kay started off as a guitar player. And I've done sessions with her, and, you know, you, she doesn't even have to be plugged in, and she'll play yeah. the intro to She California. has a very defined sound. And yeah. it's her sound. It's right. where she mm -hmm. picks. And Paul's very similar in the way in which he, he picks on the bass. Huh. But not always. I mean, the, I, I think that during the 79 UK tour, when Paul was playing that Yamaha bass, that he was playing, I mean, he was playing hard, and it was, it was yes. huge. It was a huge bass sound. I think some of his biggest bass playing, you know, in terms of girth, girthsome <laughs> bass. Yeah, because, you know, because that was kind of a step beyond. The Rickenbacker was kind of getting a little out of tune. And I think the last thing that Paul used the Rickenbacker on, you know, was, I think, during, you know, during the, the Back to the Egg sessions. Okay. But it wasn't always a Rickenbacker then either. But, but then Yamaha gave gave him this left-handed bass. Mm. And I ordered a, the same bass, but right, the right-handed version, which Denny used on the, on the tour. I still have it, and I still mm. record with it. But you have to think like a bass player. Yeah. But you know, there are different ways of thinking like a bass player. You can think in a very kind of Nashville roots kind of way, or you can think more melodically, as Paul does. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, some of his most astounding bass playing is on the Ram album. He listened oh, to the yeah. bass on another yeah. day. It's crazy. You know, and Denny Sywell, you know, said that he never heard the bass parts till the record came out. Because huh. all the mm. tracks were cut with, with him, Denny playing drums, Paul playing either piano or guitar. Right. And then Hugh McCracken or David Spinoza playing guitar. Yeah. But there was no bass. And so he was, you know, when the, when the record came out was when he heard the bass. And you listen yeah. to the bass on another day. And there's times when it's moving, it's actually moving in like in parallel sevenths with the, with right. the melody. It's just such a, it's almost like Bach. It, <laughs> yeah. it, it lives in Although, such a 
a contrapuntal. He plays kind. it very much like a bass. That one. It doesn't sound guitaristic to me. No, not at all. I, I, Even I, though it's extremely melodic, it's very well, much. Well, that's a bass the tone. nature of his bass playing is a very melodic yeah. sensibility. Yeah. Yeah. Another day in particular. Wow, that's yeah. some great bass playing. So from the from these back to the egg sessions, you know, there's also this story, the daytime, nighttime suffering story where he's like, guys, write, write a song. And then, you know, it was his song that won. What happened to those I, I don't songs? remember it exactly okay. as that kind of competition. From my perspective, it was, we had a meeting. It was January of 1980. Mm-hmm. No, no, January 79, I'm sorry. Right. We had a meeting. We got together in this conference room, and you know, it was like a kind of a corporate board meeting. And it was like, okay, what's the next step? Well, we need a single. And uh, the conversation I remember was, okay, well, what did you do in the Beatles when you needed a single? And Paul said, we'd write one over the weekend. So, so I remember, you know, we'll go write one over the weekend. Um, but, but I think that the opening for somebody else to get a song in was there. Therefore, it was competitive right. in that respect. But I, 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 know, I don't remember it being a formal competition. It's okay. like, you know, you... you <laughs> You, you you get the hit song, you win the Rolls Royce. Right, and it wasn't quite yeah. that. <laughs> what does she get for all the love she gave you? There on the ladder of regret. I do river, give her all she gave. And I didn't even attempt anything because I just knew that my writing wasn't up to that level sure. at that point. I mean, the only thing of mine that we ever recorded was Maisie, which was kind of a Chet Atkinsy little guitar instrumental. And that, but I was just starting to write okay. in that period.
That was one of the first songs you've ever written, right, Macy? Yeah. Or pieces or whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, I mean that was first one I was I wrote the um recorded. Okay. Certainly. I mean I had other kind of fragmentary things. Sure. That was that was kind of an actual piece. I have a few other things floating around. There was one that we recorded. I don't know whatever happened to it. There was mm. one that um, eventually, um, uh, what eventually became known as Fire Leaves was okay. a piece that, there was another one called the Stepney Two-Step that, there was one particular piece I was just jamming on when Paul arrived at the studio and he said, oh, let's record it. So we recorded huh. it and that was, a, never heard it again. It's just it's in the vault somewhere, somewhere as a, right? Somewhere as when vault. they do the archive back to the egg, um, maybe we'll get that. If they ever unlikely, do that. Unlikely. No, that was post Back to the Egg. Oh, it was post, okay. That was already when we were back at Lim Castle doing the videos for Back to the Egg. That was when we recorded Weep, Weep for, for Love. Love. Weep for Love was recorded. And Robber's Ball was recorded there. Yeah, we uh, love both of those tunes. We now, Robber's Ball happened. was an interesting one because I, was, I got there and was just kind of noodling and Paul walks in and sit down on, sits down on the drums and starts playing a beat and we ended up laying down a track just huh. the two of us okay which then when everybody else showed up Paul said oh let's just let's work on this huh. and it became Robber's Ball so I I have a proprietary feeling about that particular one because, because the, the basic track was, was just the two of us singing on that record because there's amazing vocals on yeah that. we all we all yeah i think we those big sort of group responses and things like that yeah that's the whole band yeah so like when it came to putting the album together like the sequence together like how come something like that fell off or something that's oh great it was already cage, the album was know? already done by oh then. it was done you're right yeah. you said the videos but, but, you were working but, on the video but to go back to daytime nighttime suffering the issue was that we couldn't get into abbey road because cliff richard had it booked and if it wasn't cliff it would have been Kate Bush, Kate Bush right. and so Paul said, "Well, we're mixing. We're not recording. We're done recording. Essentially done recording. Let's let's build a control room in the basement of Soho Square, MPL, and let's mix there." Right. So they built Replica, which was a replica of the control room of Abbey Road Studio Two, and brought in the echo from Abbey Road over wow. like high res phone lines. Amazing and. 
we were, you know, set to start mixing. And then Paul walks in on the Monday morning and says, I have this new song, Daytime, Nighttime Suffering. I want to record it now. <laughs> so wow. you know, we set up Steve's drums in the kitchenette. Wow. It was tiny. It was like, you know, it was like a, like less than a home studio. It's good sound, though. Good sound. You yeah. wouldn't know it. Yeah, it's a great sounding record. Crisp and... Yeah. yeah. Um, and Paul played an RMI electric piano. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the rare occasions where he said, okay, I have this specific lick mm. that he wanted me to play. So I, I played that. And I don't recall it taking that long to cut the track. Mm. And then we spent much of the week working on it, finishing it up. Uh, but we also, at the same time, started looking at the existing track of Goodnight Tonight. Because ah. Paul had already sketched that out. But it needed stuff added to it. Okay. So we added some electric guitar, and then at one point it was like, well, there's a perfect spot for like a flamenco-style guitar solo. So, you know, they kind of point Amen. to me and point to the mic. And I didn't have an acoustic guitar with me, so I borrowed Denny's Ovation Adamas. Okay. And they ran the track, and I played this this solo, and, and I said something like that, and I said, yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, man. <laughs> That's one of those, you know, it's like you kind of want to try and nail it first time. Right. My favorite story is, and I, I wish I'd been a fly on the wall for this session, mm -hmm. was when Tom Scott recorded the sax on, soprano sax on Listen to What the Man Said. Yes. Right. Did Denny tell you that story? He did not. Denny said that, that Tom's in, in the booth, he's playing with one hand, with his left hand, with his right hand, he's writing down <laughs> like a chord chart. That's amazing. And when it was done, he said, okay, I'm ready. And they said, no, we got it. <laughs> and him, like, just noodling along with the track... Unbelievable. ...was what ended up on the record. The funny thing about it is that's a very singable solo. I sing along with that solo every time. Well, it's yeah. so melodic and tuneful, yeah. But, but Tom's a really melodic saxophonist. Yeah. So I have this um, little list of songs, and I, I'll just say a bunch of them from this period, see if anything, any stories come out of it. So, Cage? Cage. Well, Cage was an outtake from Back to the End. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, and a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it should have been on the album, but... Thank you. It should have been. <laughs> um, but I think that the, 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 the different bits of it, I mean, you have that, that do, 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 Spelling do, 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 that's, that's the, you know, the cage riff. And then you have the, I've been sent to tell you, the ballad. Yeah. Which on its own could have been a, could have been a hit record. Correct. Yes. Uh -huh. um, it just needed a little bit, you know, it needed an intro and it needed a little bit more shape. Um, and then there was the weird calliope bit, 
Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. Which was basically us blowing over whiskey bottles. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, but to get like to change the pitch, we had to like you know drink some of the whiskey. <laughs> I guess we could have poured it in That's the sink. That's not a bad thing. Waste a good. Can't scotch. waste. Yeah, can't waste. And that. so we were getting kind of progressively, you know, <laughs> soused as this. Right. <laughs> There's that kind of like little flourish in there. I remember they mic'd up Paul's Rolls Royce and were trying to record the horn on his Rolls Royce. It didn't wasn't the right sound, but but that would be that that was not an unusual circumstance. (laughs) Go mic up the car. Yeah, crazy. And do you have a sense of why that's not on the album? No. Like, how does that sort of decision? I I don't think that it ended up being fully satisfying. Or mm-hmm. meeting the kind of more, at least the side one going into side two criteria of a more edgy kind of rock sensibility. But I think it's a shame that it didn't get more exposure because the, the, the ballad part of it, that mid-tempo, you know, would it, could yeah. have been a hit record. As the huge clouds part, they see the palace of the king of the birds. While we were in Scotland, before we went down to Lim Castle, so July of of 78, we had a day when Paul wanted to record demos of these Rupert songs. Mm -hmm. So all of those were done in a day. Wow. And you can hear the piano gradually going out of tune as (laughs) as we progress through the tune. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, The funny thing is that there's one, when the wind is blowing... Somebody somewhere along the line misread when as Cohen. Oh. So Cohen the wind is blowing yeah. started showing up on bootlegs. Yeah, I never understood yeah, it just, that. No, yeah. it, was just a, it was just somebody misreading. It just was a kind of a Yeah, telephone type. lost in translation. Yeah. Um, now, he had been working very cool on those songs on from way back, right? He had been working on those yeah, songs those, since like those 71, Those were not new right? songs, mm-hmm. but uh-huh. he'd never recorded demos of them.
You know, the acetate came out quite well. I have, yeah, I have an acetate of that. Wow. Oh, you know, it's really good. Yeah, I mean, it was cool stuff. They might be demos, but they're very clean, slick demos. They're good. But they were just performances. I don't yeah. recall there being anything in the way of overdubs. I mean, it was really mm. fun. I loved working that way. You know, it was like mm-hmm. old school where you just like, you know, a tune an hour kind of right. thing. So what happened? Like why? Well, why that is it on you the know shelf? ended up feeding into the frog chorus kind of you sure because Paul owned the rights to to Ru- the Rupert the character Rupert, yeah. and wanted to do something with it, but it was still kind of you know you it's like with a lot of creative projects you you own rights or you you know create something and then you demo it or you you know it might take a few years to gain some traction or to right. find the right outlet for it is that how after you've gone ended up on the, the your first ep oh on my on, on the standard time yeah. stuff um that was the standard time material that i recorded in september of of 79 okay was just Paul saying, "Hey, I'm, I'm I'm assigning different people to do albums of stuff out of my publishing catalog. Do you want to do one?" Richard Niles in as, as a ranger producer and um, just recorded a bunch of stuff you know mm-hmm. made a list of things like stormy weather and mm-hmm. after you've gone and you're no good four brothers mm-hmm. the old big band tune and just did kind of ver- you know versions of really for a music library kind of use right but they didn't really do anything with them
stuff was so well recorded that it was being used for a while to demo really high-end audio equipment. Yes, I read shows. that somewhere. Um, and you won I, an award for that? No, no, that was later. That, that was, was okay. no, That was my Guitar Noir DVD, uh, DVD audio that I did in 2003. That won a, a Demi Award um, for, from the Consumer Electronics uh, people, for, which is what they give for stuff that you can demo High, high end, end stuff, yeah. high five stuff, sure. And and DVD etc. Magazine, I I mean I beat out in their their kind of ranking. I beat out like Hotel California and wow. all kinds of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Settle down for a rest Just do me one small favor I beg you, please play me my baby's request Maybe before we leave Back to the Egg, we should, you know, speaking of elaborate demos, we should mention Baby's Request, with those sweet guitar licks at the beginning, and apparently that was a, a demo, right? Uh, well, essentially it was a demo. Um, Paul had seen the Mills Brothers in France and decided to write a song for them. And so we recorded it in order to send to them. Mm -hmm. But it was recorded no less coherently than anything else we were recording. Yeah, it's awfully good, yeah. Although I've seen, there's a picture from that session and some, some very odd discussions as to, you know, Paul at one point was playing the Bill Black bass mm -hmm. and some very odd discussions about who's playing what on that. And it mm -hmm. was very straightforward. I mean, it was, you know, Paul, I think Paul played piano, I played guitar, um, Steve played drums, Denny played bass. I think Paul may have overdubbed an, a new bass part, but it was, it was very much in that kind of just in the moment. The, my story there is that when it got to... The solo yeah. on that, I said, oh, you know, great to have a trombone solo on this. Yeah. And Paul kind of acknowledged that. And I said, and what's more, next door at Abbey Road, Don Lasher is doing a session. And Don Lasher yeah. was like one of the great, great trombone Absolutely. players. Absolutely. I said, get him into play. And Paul said, no, nah, I, think, I think I'll do it myself. So he got out the mini Moog and uh, he did it. Did it himself he did it on, on the, the key on the synthesizer. Yeah. But you could bring back memories departed by playing my baby's request. But ironically when he re-recorded it during the um, Kisses on the Bottom sessions, mm -hmm. what's playing the solo? A trombone. A trombone, an actual trombone. <laughs> an actual trombone. <laughs> so it only took, what, 30-something years for my, my concept to, to, to get through. Just one more time before we go to bed. Thank you. 
So I'm trying to figure out what the overlap is between the end of Wings and the recording of Tug of War slash Pipes of Peace. And so we have recordings of Wings going through songs like Average Person and Rain Clouds and Sweetest Little Show. And none of them seem to be working out very well in those rehearsals. Do you have a sense of what happened there? Well, I think that there are a couple of things that work. One is that we had kind of evolved in the direction of being a rock band, whereas Paul was coming in with tunes that were decidedly kind of soft, kind of slightly arty pop. So that was one thing. But I think the biggest issue was that we were rehearsing songs that would have been more effectively worked out in a studio. It, it just was not the right environment right. to be tackling songs that needed to be texturalized and orchestrated when, you know, right. we were, whereas, you know, like a song like No Values, you oh, know, which is, which was one of my favorites that, that mm -hmm. Paul had. And you know, unfortunately, never properly realized it with Give My Regards to Broad Street. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas a rock song, or, or three or four would have would have given us something to really you know get our teeth into, but it was just it was the wrong environment to be working on the that kind of material. Yeah, when you hear, for example, "Keep Undercover" on Pipes of Peace, and then you go back and listen to Wings working through it, it, it seems all wrong. It really doesn't seem right for the song. Well, yeah, it was just the wrong circumstance. Now, there are some songs at the end of the Wings period that, you know, we just have question marks about them, so maybe you know a thing or two. Now, you already mentioned Robber's Ball, and I had no idea that you and Paul had kind of formed the foundation of that one. Robber's Ball ends up being a pretty elaborate production, all those vocal overdubs and different vocal styles and everything. And was there a sense when a track like that was in progress that it was heading for an album? Or no, no. Just Paul doing something, huh? It was just a day's work. Stuff like that was, you know, there was no, no real context for it. It was just... Because we were hanging out in the studio and, uh, you know, there was filming going on and there were kind of days where it was like, okay, let's, you know, let's just be a band in the studio for a day. I see. We're also trying to figure out if Wings ever actually had a shot at Unbelievable Experience or Stop You Don't Know Where She Came From. Not really, no. Okay. And what about Seems Like Old Times? No. Okay. Question answered. <laughs> You know, we have all these different resources, and some of them are quite good. They've accumulated over the years online, these discographies, and there are question marks all over them, and it's interesting to get some of it kind of cleared up. So I, I think that the most important part of this is what happened with coming up, because you know you have the you have back to the egg comes out. We do the UK tour. There's no American tour planned. 
Paul didn't put goodnight tonight on back to the egg. So there was kind of, and an, like the Rolling Stone review was kind of so-so. Although, you know, years later it kind of got re-evaluated. Some of the momentum went out of it, uh, out of the, the process. And then Paul had this deal with Columbia Records. And I think he was looking at it like, you know, we could have a live album because we recorded the British tour. But then he also had all these tunes that were clearly not Wings tunes that he'd been fooling around with for McCartney too. And that was a way of him putting out an album that would help, you know, fulfill his recording commitment. Mm. And, and so you have his studio version of Coming Up, which they did the video to, debuts on Saturday Night Live and is not getting a lot of traction at radio until the DJs flipped it over and started playing the live version on the B-side. So you have mm. Paul kind of in his experimental kind of proto-electronica kind of mode with the McCartney 2 album, and then you have Wings, which being on the road and actually kind of really starting to forge itself as a rock band, and then recording this version of it, which subsequently gets released, you know, as the B side and becomes the A side, mm -hmm. and becomes his, you know, the last Wings number one record. It's kind of very telling the two, the the Paul as a as a creative entity, as as an artist, was going off in these other directions. But Wings had kind of like established itself, you know, especially in in the Back to the Egg incarnation as that much more of a rock band. But it was the wrong time for right. that because Linda was starting to lose really mm. her enthusiasm for it because uh -huh. she has four mm. kids and she'd done the world tour thing. She really, she never went into it with a passion for being in a band in yeah. the first place. So, yeah. and then of course John dies and, uh, and it all kind of just becomes kind of a phase transition from the seventies into the eighties. Right. But you know, the, I, I refer to, that whole period is the Indian summer of wings because we were doing, you know, we were doing really good work, but the, the artistic context for it had changed. You mentioned in one interview that you felt Columbia didn't know how to market Paul's stuff as well as capital. Right. Can you expand on that at all? I think that capital were because of the history with the Beatles were, were more, perhaps more inclined to take chances mm -hmm. um, on the marketing side. Whereas I think with Columbia, there was kind of a sense that, well, this is Paul McCartney, therefore it's going to sell multi-millions anyway. You know, you look at the timing where this is right on the back of, of the peak years with rumors, with Saturday Night Fever, where the new normal had become five, six, seven, eight million album sales. So there mm -hmm. was kind of, a, a, I think, a presupposition that a, a new Paul McCartney album would kind of fit into that. So you add the fact that the, the economy kind of nosedived in the first yes. part of 79 with the fact that Goodnight Tonight, which was the hit single, right. was not on the album. I think it conspired to... Uh, plus, of course, the videos were not shown on TV until later in the year. Mm. That's there was bizarre. no tour to go along with it. It wasn't like the videos were shown with the release. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, the, the CBS syndicated TV special, I think, was more like October or November of that hmm. year. It just was, the timing just timing, wasn't yeah. that 
well organized. Now, how much of that was Columbia? How much of that was MPL? How much of it was just a force of nature is hard to right. hard to quantify. But the, the long tail of it is that Back to the Egg has kind of proven itself to be one of the more popular Wings albums mm-hmm. in that it's aged time very well, period. Yeah. And, and it's aged well, um, and it, it is, doesn't necessarily sound dated. No. Not that the Wings repertoire necessarily is dated, but I think that... Some of it. it some of it, maybe. Yeah. You know, along with mullet hairdos and, and stuff. But, <laughs> but, the, but I think that it just... I think it was good work. And, you know, my approach to what I do artistically and, you know, as a musician and within an artistic context is that this the quality of the work that is important. The commercial success, if it comes, is a great bonus. But I've worked on a lot of really cool projects that aren't necessarily commercially successful, but are worthwhile projects that get one way or another get recognized in some kind of cult fashion. Right. So Wings Folds, officially in April of, um, April 27th of 81 is the official date because that's the date that um, Denny left and that was without Denny there was no more wings uh, I'd already seen the writing on the wall and was had moved mm. to New York in January of that year huh. I, I'm in New York for I met met Hope who became my wife she was from LA April 28th so the day after wings officially folded mm. was when I met Hope and fell instantly in love it's amazing and the entire universe shifted yeah and then I ended up moving to L.A. in October of that year. Uh, in New York, I got into doing session work fairly quickly, and I was doing a lot of jingles like Coca-Cola, American Express, Lincoln Mercury. But L.A. was really where I wanted to end up, and, mm-hmm. and that's where Hope's family was. And so I moved out to L.A. We got married uh, March of 82. And I started getting into doing some su- studio work. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hope's dad, Sherwood Schwartz, who's a TV producer, had introduced me to a few people. But then I, I found myself one particular week, I played on with Michael Lloyd, who's old school Hollywood record producer, had done You Light Up My Life with Debbie Boone. And, right. and right. I, I got um, introduced to Michael. First session I did with him were a bunch of songs for Joni Loves Charchi. <laughs> That Mitch Weissman was playing Paul McCartney on Joni Loves. I just on an met episode him two Johnny weeks Loves ago because you know Mitch had been in Beatlemania. Yeah, and then the next day I go and play a scoring session for the underscore of Joni Loves Charger with Dan Folliot, who was a TV composer, and so that kind of. That started a period where I was doing a lot of session work for both of them. I mean, in fact, my relationship continues with both of them. I remember one of the first movie sessions I played on was the opening credits of Splash, Wooly Bully. We did a re-record of Wooly Bully. Oh, that's a re-record. I didn't know that. Yeah. In the Big Chill, there was one original piece of music in the whole movie score Mm -hmm. where one of the characters has a TV show. Yeah. And we recorded the theme for the TV show. Um, It's a great soundtrack. But meanwhile, I was starting to get into songwriting and starting to get into composing. And I had been on a session over at Michael Lloyd's studio with a producer named Michael James Jackson, who had previously worked with Kiss, Mm -hmm. and also Paul Williams when he was on staff at A&M Records. And 
I, I had a Les Paul and a Marshall stack, and I was played this D minor guitar riff, and um, Michael, the James Jackson, the producer, jumps up, grabs a cassette, grabs a cassette, puts it in the machine, and says, "Play that again." And I played it again. He recorded it, and he gave me the cassette. And said, "Go write a song with Steve Jones and Michael Debar." <laughs> Um, based on that riff, because he was producing Checkered Pass, which was right. a rhythm section from Blondie, Steve Jones uh -huh. from Sex Pistols, Tony Sales, who years later ended up in Tim Machine with, yes. um, uh, with David Bowie, and Soupy Sales' son. And then uh, Michael Debar was the lead singer. And so I went and wrote this song, World Gone Wild, mm -hmm. with them. Uh, which ended up being the lead-off cut on the album, which Kerrang! magazine in England voted heavy metal album of the year. A couple of years later, Hope was throwing out an, a, a pile of newspapers, and on top was an old a calendar section from the LA Times, and she saw right there was an article about Apollo Pictures doing a movie called World Gone Wild. Oh. And she traced the producer to the set in Arizona. And right pitched him on the song and it turned out they already had a song called Born Gone Wild by uh. Checker Past oh. <laughs> and then they sent me the script and the first page of the script was the lyric of the song Ended up, I did a demo of this riff, like orchestra, like orchestrated it, yeah. and took it to the the editing room, and we put put up the cassette up against the movieola again. This is right. before video, yeah, yeah. and I hit every cut on this demo, and <laughs> they offered amazing. me the score. So that was kind of my first movie score was that. Wow. Um, and then right around that same period, uh, Sherwood asked me to do the um, the music for a very Brady Christmas, mm. which still gets shown every Christmas. Yeah, it I mean, does, yeah. yeah. So 20, 30 years later. Um, so that was my first kind of orchestral score that I did. And I just got some other scoring gigs, but I was doing a lot of session work, played on the, the soundtrack to um, Dirty Dancing. I'm on Time of My Life, She's Like the Wind. Pretty yes. big songs, both of those songs. Oh, yeah. Big soundtrack period. Yeah, there was, a, there was a period when I was playing on, you know, there was a bunch of hit records. There was, I mean, Time of My Life was a number one, won an Academy Award. Mm -hmm. um, uh, She's Like the Wind, the Patrick Swayze record, that was a number three.
there was a lot of that kind of stuff. What else? Oh, uh, Eric, Eric Carmen, Make Me Lose Control. Played mm-hmm. on that. And so that was a follow-up single because he had a hit off of that. So, the oh, soundtrack. Hungry Eyes. I didn't yeah. play on Hungry Eyes, but I played on... But you played uh, on the follow-up, Make yeah. Me Lose Control. Yeah, which was, again, it was a big hit. And then Barry Manilow. Yeah, well, this was Michael Lloyd, being a kind of a real old school kind of mainstream producer, does a lot of those kinds of artists. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Barry Manilow, I did an album, played on an album, and did some arranging with him. Uh, There's a track called Moonlight Memories of You that I I (laughs) did the whole arrangement for. If I could hold you, feel your heart. Just one more time There's nothing that I wouldn't do Cause without your love I'll never be free of My moonlight memories of you One time Everybody's life There is a moment Like the moment we knew And if you're a fool You let it slip away Up until 1990, that's when you you get your record deal, and then you start putting out your own records. So Solo right. Flight. Yeah, Solo Flight was the first one in 1990. You know, since Wings, during the whole, all the 80s, I've been writing a lot of acoustic guitar pieces, as well as, you know, with Hope, writing a lot of comedy songs, because she had her uh, band, The Housewives, which was a comedy <laughs> rock and roll band that went through various incarnations, ending up by the end of the 80s with um, Maggie Mayo, John Mayo's wife, was right. in it. So John used to come play at our gigs. Mm. It was fun. And they were, they were doing a lot of TV. You know, the, being in L.A., there's a lot of TV and movie stuff, it's more sure. so than the record industry, really. Interesting. And then I started putting out my own records, which I've now done, I think, 25 or 26. Yeah, that's what it's really... It's a rapid pace, yeah. It's like an album a year, almost. Almost, yeah. 94, I got introduced to Al Stewart. 
Yeah, we're interested in your Al Stewart collaboration. I produced four albums for him. The first one, what happened was um, Peter White was getting too busy with his own career, so he, um, Al needed somebody to, to take over, not just as guitarist, but also kind of as a producer, kind of you know, creative foil. Mm-hmm. And he and I did a tour of uh, Colorado together in March of 94 and that then subsequently he came over to my studio and we we demoed a song called Night Train to Munich mm-hmm. which he then they they then pitched to um Mesa, I think it was Mesa Blue Moon was the record company mm. um and that then generated the between the Wars album, which I was very... Which I just listened to this morning. What a remarkable sounding album. It's a great album. We did it. It was all done in my studio. And mm. I was engineering. I mean, I had Jim Keltner come over, and I'm engineering Ooh. Jim Keltner wow. on drums. You know. <laughs> and then Bruce <laughs> Gary played on a couple of tracks, too. And, you know, what we tried to do, and I did this really with the subsequent albums, too, is the, the demo is the record. As huh. far as like, Night Train to Munich... The guitar solo on that was the demo solo. I mean, it was wow. the first take demo solo that I never, never replaced. Just the fact that when you capture something, you capture it and you don't, sure. you don't want to overwork it. And Al doesn't have a lot of patience in the studio. Oh, really? So. He seems like the opposite. <laughs> oh, no. You know, he'd come in with something on piano and I'd, and I'd say, well, you know, let's try that on guitar instead. And mm. so we'd lay down a guitar track and then I'd say, okay, let's put a vocal on. Well, I don't have any lyric. Okay, well, I'm going to go put the kettle on. And when I come <laughs> back with tea, we're, you're gonna, you will have written the lyric. You know? So he'll just scribble something out. And then, of course, it'll get rewritten later. I mean, Year of the Cat wasn't originally Year of the Cat. Is that right? Yeah. It, was, it went through a couple of different encounters. I know one was Foot of the Stage. It was about Tony Hancock. <laughs> and then I think there was also one about Princess Anne before that. Wow. Um, but but you'd have to ask Al about that. But certainly, right. um, but Night Train to Munich was actually one that he had the whole song was essentially written. At the station underneath the clock Carry an umbrella, no need to talk The man and the humbug Hiding in the fog will be watching Get yourself a ticket, go through the gate It's 7.45 precisely, don't be late If anybody follows, don't hesitate Keep on walking I take the night train to Munich Rumbling down the track After half an hour in the restaurant car Look for the conductor and there will be a stain on his tunic A paper underneath the sun Then you gotta pray that he doesn't look away Or you'll never, never, never come back We did one called Down in the Cellar, which was uh, wine-themed. It's a wine album, right? Yeah. There's some cool stuff on there, but not, for me, I think not as creatively compelling as Between the Wars.
down in the cellar, sir Jean Louis Shine All the shadows are leaving Bottles lying asleep in the car You'll see history well, Sparks of Ancient Light was the, the last one. I forget the one before. A Beach Full of a Shells. A Beach Full of Shells. That's yeah. my favorite one. And both of those, I thought, would, would, they belong almost together. Yeah, yeah. Um, because there, there's a very, very strong narrative. And it's just, I think it's, it's, it's interesting music making. Get even more old than I am now I'll have a house overlooking the water I'll read all the books that I never got round to Pile all my suitcases up in the corner The lights of the city there Blink up and on again Names in my memory are there Then they're gone again Albums of photographs Spread on the floor again I'll spend my evenings with Catherine of Oregon. There's a lot of variety here, actually. You know, a lot of it, of course, is solo guitar or guitar and small combo, but you get a lot of stylistic variety across these albums. Anything you'd like to highlight? Well, an important album for me was the LJ album, which was my third one. Yes. Because that was the first one that I really got deeply into altered tunings. Those are all originals on that one. Well, all, almost everything I did to begin with was originals. It wasn't until I did LJ Plays the Beatles, mm. which was essentially, I mean, pretty much you know, a decade into making records. Other than, mm -hmm. of course, my winter guitar, which had some Christmas carols on mm -hmm. it. My focus was on doing original material. It's just that Hope convinced me to do... LJ Plays the Beatles because people were asking for an album of Beatle arrangements. And you didn't want to do it. And I didn't really want to do it, but <laughs> she insisted and I wasn't going to say no. So I said, well, okay, you, you produce it, I'll do it. So that's how we worked it out. And now, you know, I'm now I'm, I've done three albums of Beatle tunes. Yeah. So it really kind of, that's what kicked in kind of becoming more of an arranger specifically than a composer because one of the things that happened during that after the turn of the century was that once iTunes came into play and CD sales started dropping off on iTunes the stuff that was selling were cover tunes was not original hmm. because people are looking for songs hmm. rather than you know unless they're specifically fans of the artist it really and to this day i mean my my best selling stuff on on itunes is is the cover tunes hmm. um, still mostly little wing in my life uh, stand by me that was kind of fun when the stand by me um I, that was not even an album that I was supposed to make. Um, I had a deal with Hal Leonard to do a folio of arrangements of popular mm -hmm. songs. Mm -hmm. 
And after it was done, my record company, Solid Air, said, you know, it'd be nice to have an album to go along with this. Hmm. And I, I kind of kicked and screamed about it. <laughs> but it, eventually I said, okay, well, I'll do it. With Stand By Me, that was one that uh, an ad agency discovered it and used it in a diamond commercial. Nice. And all of a sudden, I'm looking on iTunes and under Stand By Me, it says Benny King, John Lennon, Lawrence Tuber. Um, <laughs> and, and I was getting, within a week, I was getting like inundated with requests to play at weddings. Wow. with a lot of skepticism and was pretty blown away. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I, I can't really take credit for it from a, from the musical substance because that's Henry Mancini. Uh, you know, what sure, I did was I just, I just made it fit on guitar. <laughs> so that was kind of cool because, you know, we got a Grammy there. L.J. Plays the Beatles was an important one because it introduced me as an arranger and also showed that Beatles songs could work very effectively for solo fingerstyle guitar, mm -hmm. at least within, within the parameters of my style.
but I still was wanting to do original material. You know, uh, the, the one that followed that up different times, which was recorded in a day and a half at Capitol with Peter Erskine playing drums. Wow. I, mean, I wanted to do something with a little more of a jazz record. Unfortunately, that was released the week of September 11th mm. and went into the, the, this hole that everything else that was released during that period went into. And so uh, a year or so later, when I was doing this DVD audio session for, um, for AIX Records, I pulled in some of the material from that album uh, to re-record uh, along with some um, ensemble trio arrangements of some earlier stuff and um, that was the Guitar Noir DVD which um, was won some awards and was very well received so that was kind of a, a bit of a milestone there mm. uh, obviously the Pink Guitar uh, compilation which was all Henry Mancini stuff where I did the Pink Panther um, that was fairly important but then when I gave Paul LJ plays the Beatles he said what about wings <laughs> you know thinking in terms of his publishing catalog and, and eventually Hope said you know Paul did kind of suggest it so I, I did you know one wing Yeah, there were certain albums of original material that really stood out to me. Like, uh, it's going back a bit, but Mosaic. Oh, yeah, Mosaic's one of my yeah, favorites. And that song, by the way, I must have listened to that song five times yesterday. What a gorgeous Really thing. nice changes. Thanks. Well, that. that one gets, you know, that gets played quite a lot on Sirius. I think either on the Spa Channel <laughs> or something like that. Nice. Um, you know, so, you know, people have kind of been discovering some, some of this stuff because once Pandora and Spotify and stuff came along, it just opened up a, a new audience for this kind of music. Because instrumental music generally, I mean, I've, I've made, you know, I think I've made more money out of my stuff being used in music libraries over the mm. years than, than from... Mm kind of artist-driven sales, other than the stuff, of course, you know, that, I mean, nowadays, you know, everybody sells their CDs, you know, their merch at, at concerts. just became a thing just putting out guitar albums just uh -huh. either solo or, or small ensemble just became part of my kind of my forward momentum as an artist along with touring you know during the 90s uh, when I was doing a lot of dates with Al Stewart just the two of us as a duo and on to, into the you know in, into the 21st century too I haven't mm -hmm. done it now probably in about five or six years but 
but we've done you know done a fair number of gigs and that introduced me to audiences that might otherwise not have heard my music You know, just a couple odds and ends, and we'll let you go. I appreciate you taking all the time that you've taken for us today. You know, family ties, home improvements, seventh <laughs> heaven. You were doing these for years and years. Like, everybody has heard your music. It's been everywhere. Yeah, 30 years of being a studio musician. Right. Because, you know, that was all parallel. I mean, when we would, we had 11 years of seventh heaven, which is very, years. very heavily acoustic guitar driven. And Dan Folliott wrote all that music, and we had to figure out a way of notating it because he would write in altered tuning. So you went with tablature on that? No, no. We used notation, but we used a special way of approaching it. Hmm. So I would read it as though I was reading it in standard tuning, but it would come out sounding, you know, so I had to really Uh kind of screw my brain up. That's a a puzzle right there. But (laughs) interesting that you bring up Seventh Heaven because there's there's an album of of very cool tunes, Hmm. material from that, that I'm intending to release early next year i'm just okay. waiting to fin- finalize some licensing because cbs television actually own the rights to the tv show so i'm waiting to get permission from them to actually be able to call it music from seventh heaven uh-huh. but no there's some very cool jim cox played piano who's one of the great studio piano players gary herbig on woodwinds so when you're on a show like that you're you're basically in the band and you're contributing whatever's needed episode by episode. Well, yeah. I mean, this is underscore. This is not right, on-camera exactly. stuff. I, although we did mm-hmm. a couple of shows where we were on camera. Mm-hmm. There was that was eight years of home improvement. It's a long, yeah, it's a good, a lot, a lot of good work. If you can um, get it, I right? mean, this going back, but, you know, going back to the 80s, I mean, there was, there was a show called Brothers mm-hmm. on HBO that was the first gay-themed cable show right. that we did music for. Never saw the show. I mean, a lot of these shows I never actually saw, huh. you know, the final, but with Home Improvement, you couldn't really avoid yeah. it. No, yeah, I, um, I can hear all those licks in my head right now. I probably yeah. saw most of those episodes. <laughs> Wilson, I want to ask you a question. Yeah, a lot of that was on 12 string, too. So they send you the dailies or the tapes, and then you watch them and play to them? No, or? that's only if I'm the composer. Okay. No, typically what would happen, and this is happening like in a couple of weeks because the Roseanne show's coming back on the air. The composer will get the videotape, no, no longer tape. I mean, they'll get the video the file. right to that. Sure. And then bring the music into the set. We'll have a session booked to Capitol, you know, mm-hmm. 10 till 1 at Capitol or whatever, and, and the musicians will... It's a union date. Got you it. Know, you play... You play from the music, and, and it's all 
it's all written. But then sometimes it may be okay. We need to, you know, we need to jam on this. We need to gro- we need sure. some groove things. So there's you know times of spontaneity. But it's it, those gigs typically are you know that's reading. That's that's kind of real musician type stuff. Say you don't love him, Let me just kind of just as a coda to this, just say you know that that period with Wings, for me was a was just a remarkable education. You know, I I I like to say that I I earned my bachelor's degree from London University and my master's from McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it just gave me a, a very different kind of perspective. Mm-hmm. One not from sitting you know sitting looking at a music stand, but but being able to see. You know, be mentored in a sense by by you right. know, a great pop artist, and I'll also watch the recording process from the inside. You know, mm-hmm. what yeah. mics, what mics Phil McDonald or Jeff Emmerich would use on sure, the drums. Of course. You know, what the signal path would be, and and those things that gave me the skill set to be able to engineer, to be able to produce, to be able to arrange, okay. to do all the things that you know. Working with Al Stewart was not just being a guitar player, but it was being an arranger. Being a recordist, um, yeah, you did everything. Being, it you know, looks being like a coach, almost everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. To be able to bring all that kind of experience into what for me is my self-expression, which is being a solo guitar player. Right. Yeah. I had a friend. Seems like many years ago, and she was beautiful. She'd make more friends. Seems like everywhere she'd go. God, she was beautiful. Her heart was open. So was her mind. I was so proud. She was so kind. The best friend I could ever find. Do you have any more projects like the ones you did with Al Stewart planned in the future? The most recent thing is is um, Hope revived the Housewives as the Nasty Housewives this year. <laughs> and we did an album of protest songs, what she calls poly rock, as in political rock. And that Great. just came out. Uh, the album's called Resistors, like R-E-S, like Resistors, Resistors. Yes. And that's with yeah. Marcy Levy, who was Eric Clapton in Eric Clapton's band okay. uh, wrote Lay Down Sally hmm. and a woman named Roberta Freeman who's a great singer that's worked with Guns N' Roses and Pink Floyd and wow. um, and that's songs like Overrated uh, The Bowling Green Massacre hmm. um, Dress Like a Woman stuff that's 
No, the Ballad of Narcissus, the Legend <laughs> of Narcissus, rather, which is kind of an Al Stewarty kind of yeah. art song. That makes um, sense. Mm-hmm. It's it's actually a cool album. If you go to thenastyhousewives.com, <laughs> make sure you put the the in there. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Not suitable for oh, right. could end up and, anywhere. Right? And there's a video page. The entire album is is in video form. Okay, and there's some very entertaining videos there too. Great. But so that's that's kind of that's this year's project. I'm working on a bunch of arrangements of some standards and and uh, some new originals. Not quite sure how I'm going to release those yet. Um, I have a deal with Hal Leonard to do an, an album of stand of a folio of standards. Mm. So I'm not quite sure of the time frame with that. Uh, we just opened, uh, for which I was a co-arranger and music supervisor. We just opened a, a musical called Part of the Plan that is actually um, been running in Nashville for the last few weeks at the mm-hmm. Tennessee Performing Arts Center. That's all Dan Fogelberg songs. Okay. And it's not a biographical, it's, it's an original stage play that works in his songs. And that's a project that I've been working on for about the last three, four years. Wow. Um, so that's come to some, uh, at least a, a plateau, and may very well go into a national tour. But my work with that is substantially done because mm. it's pieced together now. Hope and I go into Australia in February because they're doing a production in Melbourne of our Gilligan's Island musical, right. uh, which just got published and is being produced by various community theaters in the U.S. Wow. Uh, the big project for me is, has been to start to really put my focus on the educational side in terms of paying it forward to really kind of be an advocate for the guitar. And I, mm-hmm. I did a session on the John Lennon bus, which was kind of fun with a bunch of school kids. And been involved with an organization called Guitars in the Classroom, which is elementary school level. And you know, when you get up to middle school and high school, you've got little kids rock, you've got school of rock type things. Okay. What I'm trying to do with this new curriculum I'm developing is, is really bridge the gap between the strict classical and the rock and roll side, so. right. That's how it goes, yeah. Enjoyed speaking with you both. Thank you so much for having us. This was great. Thank you so much. I'm at lawrencejuba.com. One last thing, my daughter Ilse. Yes. Started a few years ago when she co-wrote Fireball for Pitbull. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I know that Um, song. She wrote All Night on Beyonce's Lemonade album. Wow. Uh, Last year, Shawn Mendes' Mercy. Oh, no kidding. This week, 
Um, DJ Snake's new single, I think it's called A Different World, maybe. Yeah. She wrote that. A lot of stuff. Worked with Nick Jonas, who's uh, just in London, writing with Ellie Goulding. She's, uh, she's doing well. Making more Is money there a website we can send people to? to uh, uh, for her? Yeah. Just her Wikipedia page. Just all right, we'll L- put L-C- that up. I-L-S-E-Y Juba. And you can see all of her credits there. Yeah, maybe we'll make a playlist of those songs, too, and post on Spotify yeah. or something hey, like that. One of the cool ones is um, Powerful, Major Lazer. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Um, and that's very kind of like in her stylistic area. Um, the torch has been passed. Yes, it has. Yeah. Thank well, you very much. Yeah, thank you. That was Lawrence Juber. We are Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney Archive podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>